0: Welcome to the Sourcing Hero Podcast, produced by Una, a group purchasing organization that empowers sourcing heroes, and Art of Procurement, the world's largest procurement podcast network. I'm your host, Kelly Barner. The goal of the Sourcing Hero Podcast is to capture the epic stories of people who are rising up and beating the odds to create exceptional value within procurement, directly from those heroes themselves. Today, my guest here on the Sourcing Hero podcast is Wes Davis. Wes has a PhD in English literature from Princeton University and taught at Yale for nearly a decade. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Nation. Wes is also the author of multiple books, one of which is the recently released American Journey On the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison. And John Burroughs. And that book will be the focus of our conversation today. So, hi, Wes. Thank you so much for being with me.
1: Hello. Thank you. It's really great to be here.
0: Now, you and I were joking before we started recording the conversation that, first of all, I loved this book and I've reviewed it. I've shared my response as a a business person today. Um, So, we're certainly hoping that people will go and check it out. But super higher high Reader's Digest level, the book tells what is the true story of the friendships that formed between Ford, Edison, Burroughs, and actually also Harvey Firestone while they were taking long-distance road trips, the most notable of which happened in 1918. Tell me a little bit about how you arrived at this subject and these characters as the focus for a book.
1: Uh, Well, I was, strangely enough, interested mostly in John Burroughs, who's the figure who's probably least known uh, today. So listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, maybe less familiar with Burroughs, although he, at the time he met Ford, was one of the most popular writers in the country. And he he was also just very widely known because he wrote for lots of uh, periodicals. His name was sort of always cropping up in magazines. Um, and he was loved especially by school children who knew him from these readers that they used in school systems throughout the country to for reading instruction and Burroughs's essays on the natural world and wildlife were thought to be very appropriate for that kind of thing and so you know he he everywhere he went school children would cluster around him to try to get a look at this person they recognized from uh, their reading uh, but so I myself was interested in burroughs And I was looking through his letters one day, this was several years ago, and I came across a letter in which he was telling a friend of his, this was at the end of 1912, that Henry Ford of automobile fame was uh, a fan of his and wanted to send him a Model T to sort of thank him for his books. And I thought, this is crazy because Burroughs was known (laughs) as an outdoorsman, uh, you know, that this is the last thing he would want. It's, he had gone hiking with people like Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir. You know, he walked uh, long walks with uh, the poet Walt Whitman in the middle of the 19th century. What would he want to do with an automobile? And so I looked into the story and I found out that he not only accepted the car from Ford, but the two wound up becoming friends and they went on road trips together. And so I, I had to sort of get all the facts of that story.
0: Well it's amazing and and you mentioned a few names there. There's almost like a Forrest Gumpness to this story because you think <laughs> how could so many notable people have connected and and come together in this time? And you really do use a very sort of storytelling approach to sharing what's what's really also a lot of information about innovation and business history and social change that was happening at the time. I have to tell you, Wes, there were a couple times during the book I would get so swept up with the characters that I would get very upset about something they had done. <laughs> almost forget that it's true because I would think to myself, and I think one of the, the examples was, um, you can correct me if I have the details wrong, that Henry Ford got upset because somebody on their car trip had bought chocolate for John Burroughs yeah. to eat, and that was not going to be good for his intestinal situation. And he got so mad that he threw the chocolate bars down the street, and there were all these people around. And I thought, oh, this is so embarrassing. Why did you have him do this? And then it's like, oh, that's right. No, nope, he actually did it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's right. Yeah. This
0: all actually happened.
1: Uh, yeah. And, you know, I mean, my goal in in writing, well, in writing any nonfiction book, but this one in particular was to get so much detail that I could put the story together in that novelistic way. So, I mean, the fact that you got swept up by the story is the, the best news I could possibly hear.
0: And I genuinely started to bond with all of these characters. So I I knew some about Thomas Edison coming to it. I think I knew the most about Henry Ford. So I sort of came to it with this assumption, you think, okay, who's going to be the main character in this story? So I knew the most about Henry Ford, but then as you read the events, as they would pass through these little towns, it was really Thomas Edison in many cases that the crowds were coming out to see. But when I think about each of the people and their stories, and it's interesting to hear that you started with John Burroughs, I hadn't heard of him before starting this book. But I absolutely fell in love with him, both in terms of what he stood for and what he did, but also the relationships that he had with these other figures that we we definitely know well. Did you also form relationships with these guys as you were researching and writing the book?
1: Yeah, I mean, as I say, I, I started with an interest in Burroughs, but I certainly, you know, I spent my life sort of thinking about. Um, uh, people who use their, their brains uh, to make a living. You know, I, I spent many years as a literary critic and, and writing uh, literary history, so writing about writers. And so for me, Ford and Edison were sort of on a spectrum, you know, that, that includes writers. They're people that we know for their, for their intellectual achievements. And so it was really amazing to sort of follow them out of the, the laboratory in the case of Edison, off the factory floor in the case of Ford, and watch them as I go out into the world and have these adventures. And I feel that I be- I came to know them in a new way. And I, be- I became uh, uh, sort of fascinated by them in a new way in the course of doing this research. And I maintained that relationship with Burroughs. I mean, it was very hard to let him go. And I, you know, I was really immersed in his journal, which is one of the main sources for the book. And, um, I, you know, it was a kind of uh, challenge to not put too much of the journal into the book because almost everything he says in his journal, I just loved. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, there's a lot of that there to give us a kind of atmosphere, the the feeling of the time, uh, you know, what what he and the others are thinking about World War One, for example, um, about the pandemic of 1918. So there's a lot of his journal there. And I really sort of came to view that period and these two figures, Ford and Edison, through his eyes.
0: Well, and it's interesting because you talk about for Netison, you know, leaving the factory floor, leaving the laboratory and, and going to camp. And we should be perfectly clear. This was not glamping. I mean, this was <laughs> hardcore. I mean, I'm probably not the right person to ask. I have a sign that says I'm outdoorsy. I drink wine on the patio. So I'm not <laughs> sort of the the rugged outdoor adventurous type, but these guys were, I mean, they had tents, but in some cases they're sleeping on the ground, they're shooting their own food, they did have a, a cook and maybe somebody else with them to help with all of the gear, but this was not like hotel room to hotel room from city to city. This was hardcore living off the land for long-term trips.
1: Yeah, that's right. And you know, when you think about road trips today, I think we tend to think of the whole kind of infrastructure of the road trip with yeah. the, the roadside culture with gas stations and uh, uh, motels and, you know, now charging stations. And none of that kind of thing existed yet because the automobile itself itself was a kind of infant technology. And the idea of traveling by automobile between cities was really just getting started. And so, you know, even finding roads that would get you from, from one urban area to another was difficult. And fortunately that was something Edison enjoyed. And so it was always Edison sitting in the front seat of one of the cars with maps and guidebooks (laughs) open on his lap, you know, finding the route uh, from one, one place to another.
0: Now, when you think about how they were on these trips, but also the contributions that they made to innovation, to industrial society. To you, is there a connection between their ability, and they really did thrive. They thrived in both environments. They, in some cases, would go very seamlessly from one to the next. You know, one minute we're sleeping on the ground under a tree, next minute we're at some major pavilion at the World's Fair. Do you feel like there's a a connection between their ability to succeed in so many circumstances and the barriers they were able to break through in terms of, you know, chemical and electrical and and material innovation.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if I had to say what that what made that possible for them, I guess it's really curiosity. You know, they were always curious and that's kind of the fascinating thing to see because they're these are immensely successful people at this point in their lives, and yet, you know, they never really stop innovating. And I mean that in their careers, you know, Ford, although the Model T had, you know, was ostensibly one model for more than a decade, he was changing it constantly. I mean, it was always improving. Um, and Edison, you know, through his entire life is taking on new subjects and, and learning about uh, everything. But I also mean on these trips, like they're always curious on these trips. So, you know, there's a kind of running theme in the book that almost becomes a joke. It happens so frequently in which every time they come to a, an old abandoned mill, they have to get out and explore it and sort of see <laughs> how it was set up, you know, and Ford wants to calculate how much power it could have could have made when it was in operation. And so everywhere they go, they want to know, you know, how does this factory, if they if they you know, come across a factory, they will stop and and ask to look at it, and they'll go and look at. I mean, Ford even looks at the books when he visits a factory. You know, to see how how it's spending its money, how it's making its money. Um, and the same is true in the natural world. They wanted to know from Burroughs, and this was his expertise. You know, what are these plants? Why do they grow here? You know, what bird is that we're hearing? What's what's its call? You know, can you, and that curiosity is just. A huge part of all of these trips.
0: And maybe this is part of their curiosity too, but there's an unexpected spark that starts all of these road trips. And that's that Henry Ford's son, Edsel, is one of the very first people, even before these guys, to make a long distance road trip. And what he does is he drives out and he meets them at one of the world's fairs. And his tales of adventure and trials and hardship and and all that gets them so excited that the older generation says, we don't want to miss out on this opportunity. We want to go too. I mean, it seems very rare and unusual to me that you would have a younger generation doing something edgy and then their parents (laughs) and people even old enough to be older than their parents, in Barrow's case, like, yeah, let's go do that thing the kids are all doing. Um, do you think that's an indication of just how much change generally was happening at the time, or is it specific to this group of guys?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I, I think one way of thinking about this is that that moment, so that what you're talking about occurs in 1915, so it's the Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco Uh, which Ford has convinced Edison to visit. Edison had been asked to go to the fair, you know, by the founders of the fair as soon as the planning started for it. And he had said no, that he was too busy, you know, which is what he always said about vacations. He, He claimed never to take a vacation, but Ford convinced him to go and they traveled by train out to San Francisco and they wound up having an amazing time at this fair, you know, this, 1915, this is a moment when um, American industrialism is really kind of at a triumphant point. And the fair was really celebrating that triumph. And so many of the exhibits had to do with um, industrial developments, which Ford and Edison were both fascinated by, and many of which they had actually played a role in bringing about. So they walk around the fair and they're looking at all of these turbines and um, telegraph machines and there's an exhibit that's uh, basically a small Ford factory that's producing Model Ts, so they they love this. But as you say, uh, Ford's son Edsel and separately Edison, one of Edison's sons Theodore, um, traveled out to the fair in Model Ts that Ford had given them. And you know, Edsel's story I look at fairly closely in the book, and it's you know this crazy adventure where they're breaking down constantly because of the rough roads. Yeah, I don't know if you, there's this one night when I think they're in Arizona, they wake up in the middle of the night and realize that they've pitched their tent on top of a tarantula nest. <laughs> so would one be of why them, I
0: don't camp.
1: Yes, exactly. Let's <laughs> stick to the wine on the patio. And, yeah. Uh, you know, but so all of those adventures, I think, uh, kind of intrigue Ford and Edison. So as they're leaving, Edison, You know, because he's had such a great time, says, Well, we have to travel together again. But that comes together with these stories from the younger generation. And he says, you know, that they're they're gonna travel by car and sleep out under the stars. And I think it's partly about these people that they are always curious. They do always want to experience new things, but also it's just a new moment when we're, you know, sort of tipping into the modern world. And I think the their everyday lives are becoming uh, more and more shaped by the technology that people like Ford and Edison have developed and what Edsel and Theodore experienced was a kind of escape from that. So very strangely what you have is Ford and Edison using the Ford automobile um, as a way to escape from the world that they themselves have created.
0: That see and to me that's so interesting and I even thought about the fact that um, and you'll probably recall the cars but I there were multiple cars that would go on these trips and they weren't all Fords.
1: That's right. Yes. And
0: I remember thinking, okay, if this were happening today, the Ford CEOs PR person or whoever <laughs> would be getting involved and saying, oh, no, 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 there can't be any pictures that show any vehicles that are not Fords. But it, I mean, again, I think that there was so much newness. There was so much influx that, yeah, okay, you take that and I'll take this. And um, everybody just kind of pitched in and kept all the vehicles moving. But it was a very different, and I would even say more expansive mindset than even even some of our leading, leading innovators have today.
1: Yeah, I mean, tr- you know, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but it's it's true that uh, if this were happening today, there's no way. Th- so they traveled in uh, Edison SimpLex, and uh, in 1918, Edison SimpLex and a uh, Packard car that was owned by Harvey Firestone Jr. And those are the ones that you know they actually rode in, and then they were trailed by a couple of Fords and a white truck carrying equipment. And I mean, I guess the one thing to say about Ford, the Ford cars is that they were the ones that always made it through, you know, if they broke down, they could be very quickly repaired. And, and so they were the dependable kind of vehicles that were bringing up the rear, but the Simplex and the Packard were more, were more comfortable. And there was no one at the time to step in and say, you know, you can't take these, this is a Ford operation.
0: (laughs) Well, and I think, If there's a Ford moment from the book that will probably really stand out in my mind long term, it's when something happened and the radiator gets broken. Something goes through the radiator. And Henry Ford on the side of the road, bless his heart, rolls up his sleeves, manages to like patch everything back together again. And they just make it into the local town and they roll up to this little mechanic shop or, or garage. And the mechanics all kind of look at it like, yeah, we're going to have to send into town or whatever you did back then to get new parts. And Henry Ford is not necessarily focused on the weight because I think he probably knows he's so not waiting. <laughs> but he's frustrated with them for not having his curiosity, for not saying, you know what? You're not going anywhere right now anyway. Let's try. Let's, and instead, he is the one who fixes it. And they all stand back and watch him solve the situation. That's one of those situations where I think to myself, okay, don't be the mechanics at the garage that Ford pulls up to, right? Be the yes. person that looks at the situation and says, it's not going to get more broken. So, let's see what we can figure out. And that was Ford's mindset even then,
1: yes, no, exactly. I mean, he couldn't not tinker. you know the, the idea that he could sit there and wait is just is just absurd. And I mean, the mechanics had like a reasonable argument. you know th- this is a time when there are dozens of automobile makes, right? You know because we haven't the industry hasn't been kind of consolidated yet. And so, you know, they don't have the parts for every car. They, they don't have the knowledge to work with every car. Um, so it made sense, I guess, to wait. But exactly as you're saying, for Ford, the idea that you would leave a problem there and not tackle it, it you know, is completely beyond his, his way of, of, of thinking about things. And it's really, you know, there was a, another guy on the trip with them at that point uh, named Hurley, who was the secretary of the shipping board. Um, at, at the time. And he wrote about this later and he, he really focused on that moment. And he said that what Ford did is he took this moment that could have been uh, either the end of the trip or a very low point in the trip. And he turned it into one of the highlights of the trip because everybody kind of clustered around and they were fascinated to see Henry Ford doing this thing that he did maybe better than anybody else in the world, which was sort of tackle a mechanical problem.
0: And that's really what is required to innovate, right? You you not only have to have the skills, in his case, he had these mechanical skills and he had the perseverance to stick with the problem, but sort of this little, little bug he got in his mind where he just couldn't let it go. There, there had to be a way to streamline the manufacturing process or there had to be a way to fix this challenging problem or even there must be a way to start compensating my workers better and shortening their work week at the same time. Yes. So there's also this blending of what are we capable of doing in the industrial category, but they never forgot that all of these people were people, really, that were involved in making their companies thrive at the same time.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And I actually make the case in the book that that, uh, that change you're talking about, which is Ford's adoption of the $5 workday. Really comes out of the first trip he makes with with John Burroughs, in which they travel up to Concord, Massachusetts, and Burroughs takes uh, Ford around to see uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's house. You know, Emerson's the great transcendentalist uh, philosopher and poet. Uh, they go out to Walden Pond, where where Henry David Thoreau had lived and and that he had written about in in the book Walden. And Ford, after that, said that. That uh, you know, Ford was not a great reader, but uh, Burroughs had gotten him so interested in Emerson. He said he said that Emerson, that, sorry, that Burroughs gave him Emerson, and he started reading Emerson, and he really focused on this one essay called Compensation, that you know deals in at a number of different levels with the idea of compensation, and Emerson says things like the swindler swindles himself. And he talks about how, you know, being fair in your interactions with people is actually good for you. And I think uh, Ford really, because of Burroughs, focused on that and wound up just a few months later moving to the $5 workday, which basically doubled the workers' pay, the going rate of pay at that time. At the same time, as you're alluding to, he cut the workday from, from nine hours to eight. And I don't think that wouldn't have, I don't think that would have happened if he hadn't had this curiosity about Emerson, you know? So he the, the trip briefly shows him Emerson, he learns more, and it winds up having an effect on uh, his life and his business operation.
0: And Wes, obviously I'm preaching to the choir here, but we need more readers, right? And it's not like Henry Ford is taking a break from his factory and Thomas Edison is taking a break from their lab and they're reading, I don't know, whatever the equivalent was of the, you know, popular mechanics at the time they they're pausing in the factory and then reading a book about birds or reading a book about a new social philosophy or transcendental ideas and i think that willingness to expose yourself to new ideas from all over the place it does cross back to me into your ability to look at a problem that's in your core area of expertise and do something that people that have a more narrow focus can't do. So obviously I'm, I'm recommending people read this book, please. I hope that comes through, but read fiction. If you're an analytical person, right? Read something about science. If you're an artistic person, um, I might even attempt to read something more about being outside. Although I don't know right now, I'm still (laughs) stopping at the end of the patio. (laughs) Um, Wes, my listeners know that we have a tradition on this show and, I'm actually very excited of the way we're going to change this to take advantage of, of your expertise. Um, I always ask, you know, what's the idea of a sourcing hero mean to you or what does heroism look like in a business context? But you were telling me before we started recording that two of these guys may actually be unexpected sourcing heroes. So I'm actually very excited to give you the opportunity to share that because I think people are going to be glad to have these two individuals in our professional ranks.
1: Yes. And I might even say three of them. So, uh, oh, this just keeps
0: getting better. Up to three. <laughs> Excellent. Uh,
1: yeah. So, well, I'll, I'll start with, um, a quick story about sourcing, not materials, but, but components um and this is something that came out of the 1918 trip and i already mentioned that you know ford couldn't pass by a mill without stopping and and sort of clambering up on the water wheel and exploring the mill um and that as it sort of grew during the course of this trip led him to start talking about creating what he called village industries and the idea you know they're also they're passing through farmland on this trip and they're seeing the the sort of great work that farmers do, but also the difficulty that farmers were having in keeping their operations alive. And so Ford put this idea of using water power that he took from the mills together with uh, the kind of plight of farmers. And he came up with the idea to have small factories that he built at mill sites, sometimes converting old mill buildings. And the factories would be driven by water power uh, so they were sustainable, you know, before we even had that term and they would employ farmers in the off season and the little of these factories, very small factories would manufacture maybe just a single part, a valve for the Model T or some particular fastener or something. And that gave him a way to decentralize his production. And these components would then go to the factories in in Detroit and, you know, could speed up the operation there. You wouldn't have to manufacture these things there. But they also, these factories would keep farm communities alive. And this is a moment when the U.S. population is sort of tilting away from farming uh, and rural communities. More of the population is going into cities. And Ford wound up actually building up to 30 of these plants, sort of depending on how you define them. And many of them opened up uh, in the course of the Great Depression, and they really did keep farming communities alive, even as they supplied his larger factories with the parts they needed. So, that's and those one are story.
0: absolutely principles that are still work today. We're local sourcing. We're measuring local and diverse community economic impact based on our contracts, um, making sure we have surety of supply so that a manufacturing operation can, can keep rolling. So I definitely think we get to include him as yes. one of our sourcing heroes. <laughs>
1: That's right. Uh, and then the other thing that you and I were talking about earlier is, is um, the problem of sourcing natural rubber, which was important to uh, all three of the businessmen on these trips. So Harvey Firestone certainly used rubber in his uh, tire manufacturing operation. It was like the central material for him. Edison uh, used rubber in his experiments, but also in his manufacturing operations. Um, Rubber was used in producing phonograph records, for example. And Ford used rubber not just for the tires on the Model T, which he got from Firestone, but also for many other components. And so uh, when World War I got underway, all three of these men realized that the flow of natural rubber from the areas where the rubber trees were grown, which were largely at this point in Southeast Asia, could be interrupted because uh, German U-boat operations were really crippling shipping. And so you know they're all sort of nervous about how to maintain the rubber supply. So they start thinking about other ways uh, to secure that supply. And in 1915, when they're at the, the Panama Pacific Exposition in San Francisco, they meet up with Luther Burbank, you know, who is the great um, uh, horticultural experimenter who produced all sorts of new varieties of, of uh, vegetables and flowers and even a spineless cactus that could be used to feed, feed cattle in desert areas. And he sort of uh, encouraged them in the idea that they might be able to, f- to find or create a domestic supply for rubber and so all through that 1918 trip that I keep talking about, uh, they would uh, approach John Burroughs and show him plants. This is Edison's particular fascination. Any plant Edison found that exuded a kind of milky sap, he would immediately run to Burroughs with and say, you know, what's this plant? like?" Uh, <laughs> and this really grew through the course of that trip. And so Edison wound up spending the, the last four or five years of his life completely focused on developing a domestic uh plant a plant that either grew in north america or could be cultivated here from which you could extract latex that could be turned in into rubber and he tested by his count 10000 plants in the wow. last few years of his life and one of his last patents is actually about the extraction of latex from small plants and shrubs that contain a relatively low percentage of latex. So he was taking plants that, you know, didn't, they weren't, you know, the, the uh, uh, rubber tree plants grown in Brazil or, or in Southeast Asia. There were things like milkweed and goldenrod. And he developed a way to extract latex from them. As it turned out, just about the time he did this, chemists finally came up with a way to synthesize uh, rubber by chemical means. And so this never turned into a huge operation, but I give him uh, sourcing hero status uh, <laughs> in any case.
0: Well, we'll take him. It's, it's awesome being able to look, you know, the procurement certainly goes back to like the early days of the railroad industry, but we don't often look at people like Ford and, and Edison and, and Firestone as innovative as they were and ask ourselves, were you maybe a little bit in sourcing and procurement? Um, and it it sounds like from what you've shared, everything was probably a little bit more together back then, right? Sort of like when you found a company, you do absolutely everything. You're the boss and you're also the janitor. And, right. and these guys probably had all of these different, what we would consider functional disciplines rolling around in their heads all at the same time back then. Um, but that is a pleasant surprise for me to come away from this conversation thinking that the work that this listening audience and that a lot of my professional community is doing today is following in those impressive footsteps of Thomas Edison and, and Henry Ford. Um, Wes, this has been such a treat having you on to talk about the book, and it's available everywhere. Um, we'll, we'll share some links, but do you have any special place that you would recommend people go? Or is it best to just direct them to someplace general like an Amazon or a Barnes and Noble or a, a local library?
1: Uh, yes, wherever wherever you buy books, uh, it should be there. I mean, I've seen it in, in the biggest bookstores and the smallest bookstores. And if, if you have a small bookstore nearby, buy it there and keep them alive.
0: Absolutely, because we all need to keep reading. Wes, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sourcing Hero Podcast. Join us again next time for more true stories of sourcing and business heroism performed by your colleagues and peers. Look for the Sourcing Hero wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. Finally, don't forget, sourcing heroism is taking place all around us every day. Keep your eyes open and you're bound to see it. Until next time, I'm your host, Kelly Barner. Stay well and always remember that you can be a hero too.